0: As you heard from our scripture reading, we're in the middle of a sermon series entitled 180 Revolution, where we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today's passage, as you've heard, is Love Our Enemies. This is perhaps one of the most admired, but also most resented parts of the sermon. It sounds intriguing and inspiring, but do we really have to do it? I want to start today by introducing you to one of my heroes. She had a birthday this week, Grandma Roll. Grandma Roll would have been 107 this past Thursday. She died a couple of weeks ago at 106. You can see her candles there. Our family traveled to a small town in Illinois, cornfields the whole way, to attend the funeral. And Grandma was lucid until about two weeks before she died. She was a woman of faith, of generosity, and she prayed each, for each family member by name every morning, and that's saying something. Look at all those people. That's a lot of praying. Five children, 12 grandchildren, 24 great-grandchildren. But what has always been most remarkable to me about Grandma Roll is her disposition. She was kind, generous, and gracious. She didn't hold a grudge. I never heard a harsh word. That's incredible enough for anyone, but when you know her story, it's even more remarkable. Grandma Roll was the mother of Andy's father, Dale Roll. And as some of you may know, Andy's father died tragically when Andy was 12. He was actually murdered by a coworker. And one of the things that made going back to this funeral funeral difficult for us was that the only person missing in attendance in that huge family was his dad. In addition, and somewhat unexpectedly, since Andy is currently a similar age to what his dad was when he died, many people, aunts, uncles, cousins, even old ex-girlfriends of his dad kept coming up to Andy saying, I would know you anywhere. Your Dale's son. You look just like him. Now, as a follower of Jesus, and also as a mother who deeply loves her children, I always wanted to know, how do you do that? How do you recover from that kind of tragedy without becoming bitter and shriveling up? Grandma's pastor testified how on his last visit with her before she died, he asked if she had anything he would like her to pray for. And she replied, pray that God will give me a spirit of kindness. So here's this woman with all this reason in the world to become bitter and resentful and angry and full of hatred. And instead, the fruit of her life until the very end was faith, graciousness, generosity, kindness. I share that with you today because I want it to serve as a vivid testimony that what Jesus is telling us about, what Jesus is telling about in this passage is possible. In the 23 years since I've been a part of the Roll family, Grandma Roll has always been that way. And there are many other Grandma Rolls out there, aren't there? Personal, we could think of historical figures, MLK, but I think of even some of you. Jesus would not call us to a way of life that's not possible to live. And this way of life isn't just theoretically a good idea. It's actually a really good way to live. Writer Anne Lamott says, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. You think it'll hurt them, but actually it'll really hurt you. What Jesus calls us to here is actually for our good, not just the person who has offended us. Now, most of us haven't experienced what Grandma Roll did, but we still have people who have wounded ourselves or our loved ones so deeply that our lives were never the same. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's a parent or a family member who cheated the family out of finances. Maybe it's a coworker or a former employer. Jesus' radical call to enemy love here is not something we can do ourselves. It will take the work of the Holy Spirit, whose very fruit or result, we're told in Galatians 5.22, is love. Believe me, I'm with you. I don't like that Jesus calls us to this. It's not my natural inclination. It will take a miracle for this to happen. Thankfully, our God is very good at miracles, so our prospects look good. With that in mind, we're gonna look at this passage now by asking three questions. What, why, and how? First, what is Jesus asking us to do? What exactly does he mean and not mean by asking us to love our enemy? Second, why? Why are we to live this way? What is the motivation or the reason? And third, how? How are we to do this? So first, what does Jesus mean by loving our enemies? We've got to start here because a lot of people simply write Jesus off because they misunderstand what he's asking. Verses 43 and 44 speak to this question specifically, with Jesus saying what he doesn't mean in verse 43, and then saying what he does mean in verse 44. So verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If you're thinking, that seems weird that the Bible would say to hate your enemy, (laughs) you'd be right. Right? It doesn't actually ever say that in the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting from Leviticus 19:18 here, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's summarizing the Jewish interpretation of that teaching that encouraged the Jewish people to so love God that they hated the godless. If you really love God with a burning love, so the logic went, you would really hate anyone opposed to God. Psalm 139, 21 to 22, Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. The Jewish people wanted to so sincerely honor and worship God they thought that required that they reject and hate their enemies. If we're not careful, this kind of fierce loyalty and devotion can become a problem. Jesus knows this and is naming that here. Human tendency is such that sometimes the more we love our neighbor, the more we hate our neighbor's enemies. We wanna stand in solidarity with our friend, so out of devotion to them, we oppose anyone against them. Historian Mark Knoll describes it like this, the more unconditionally, boundlessly, unreservedly uncritically, we love our neighbor, our family, our class, our nation, the easier it is to justify hating and killing our enemies. Just think of the Crusades in the, middle, in the medieval period as an example. But it can also happen on a much more mundane level or issue. I remember interacting years ago with uh, some people long ago in Vancouver who were vegan and I respect the decision to be vegan, whether it's made ethically or out of stewardship for creation, but this particular couple was so adamant about the rights of animals that in so doing, they were pretty cruel and harsh towards human beings, which was a bit ironic, but this is human nature and it can happen with any topic. Climate change, equality, race, politics, religion. In Jesus' day, there was a religious sect called the Qumran community. They had such a desire to follow God's ways, they ostracized and excluded any who weren't in their community. Biblical scholar and writer Dale Bruner describes them and others like them like this. In-group love, married to out-group contempt, is a mark of all sectarianism. In other words, if we are so committed to our ideal or our belief, we're gonna slander, dismiss, disregard or mistreat anyone who disagrees with us, that's dangerous. And does that not describe the American political scene today? Into that climate, Jesus introduces a new ethic. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You think love is evidenced by fiercely loyal hatred to any who oppose your beloved, even if it's God? No, I'm telling you, let your love be limitless. Let it be unbounded. Let it actually extend to the enemy of your neighbor. Let it mean instead of retaliation or hatred, you will the good of those who disagree with you or make life hard for you or are opposing you. That's impossible, you say. Well, it depends on how you define the word love. If you mean feel warm affection towards my enemy, like I do towards my family and friends, then no. We're not going to feel the same way about our enemy as we do our BFF. But that's not what Jesus is asking for here. You're probably aware the Greek language has four different words for love, each describing a different kind. Familial love, like a parent for a child. Friendship love, romantic love, and agape love, the kind Jesus uses here, which means, as one commentator defined, invincible goodwill. Meaning no matter what they do to us or how they treat us, we will not retaliate we will seek their good regardless so loving our enemy doesn't mean we must feel affection for them also doesn't mean we maintain the terms of the relationship necessarily if it's unsafe or unhealthy jesus continually assumes honoring and caring for ourselves even as we love others and loving our enemies certainly doesn't mean we don't hold them to account hold them to account for their actions it is not loving our enemies when we shrug our shoulders and say everybody makes mistakes jesus was not soft on sin even matthew 18 where jesus drops his uh, infamous i tell you forgive 70 times 7 is preceded by Jesus giving clear guidelines about how to hold people to account for bad behavior and how to work it out in the life of the church. We've addressed some of this in our earlier series of conflict several months ago. So against all those misconceptions, Jesus says in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're gonna come back to that idea of prayer a little later on because it's so crucial. But for now, I want us to see that Jesus' admonition here is to will the good of those who have hurt us or mistreated us, slandered us, betrayed us in some other way, have hurt us or someone we love. Rather than getting even or retaliating and treating them the way they treated us, Jesus asks us to wish their good, not their harm. Whose face comes to mind when I say love your enemy? Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe you, like many in our contemporary culture, have fallen into the habit of ostracizing, writing off a group of people who hold a different belief than you about race, about politics, about the pandemic, about current topics. I am not telling you what to think about any of those topics right now. But I am telling you that Jesus says how you are to treat those people and disagree with them. It is not to laugh at them, ridicule, or insult, or secretly rejoice when something bad happens to them. We're to want what's best for them. We're to ask God to be at work in their lives, even if, perhaps especially if, they have hurt us or someone we love. I don't know about you, but I find that pretty convicting. If you and I live in a way in response to people who disagree with us like that, that'll turn some heads. So that's the what. Loving our enemies means willing the good of the one who has hurt you. And you'll see if you're following in your sermon notes. Now why? Why does this matter? Verse 45 gives us the first reason or motivation as to why. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. To be clear, Jesus is not saying you become his children by loving enemies, but rather you become known as his children by loving enemies. God is like this. So when we behave like this, when we do this, we look like our Father. And people will gape at us astonishingly and say, you're God's son. You're Jesus' daughter. You look just like him. And why? Verse 45 goes on to say, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Scholar Dale Bruner says, Surprisingly, in what science calls nature and the church calls creation, Jesus sees God's love of enemies. In other words, Jesus isn't asking us to do something he isn't doing himself. You can imagine in an agrarian society in the first century, pre-irrigation technology, how crucial sun and rain were for basic provision, let alone human flourishing. And Jesus' point here is, do you see how indiscriminate God is in his love? At least now, until Jesus returns, God gives generously to both good and bad, just and unjust. Theologians call this common grace, not saving grace that requires a response from us, but common grace. Common grace is just that. It is common to all. It's the providing and sustaining hand of God in sun and rain to all people, regardless of how they respond to him. In this way, God's love is indiscriminate. Let's have a little fun with this illustration of Jesus, shall we? Imagine you're in a house in Minneapolis. It's summertime. There's a drought, so there's watering restrictions. Both you and your neighbor have gardens and have also planted fresh grass seed. Now you wake up one morning and discover your backyard is nice and wet, and you think, oh, it must have rained last night, great. The next thing you know, your neighbor is looking across the yard at you, shaking his head in disbelief. My backyard's not yet. What happened? How come it rained over there and not on my lot? And you think, well, maybe if you didn't park your car in front of my house or leave your dog barking late at night, God would bless you with some rain too, dear neighbor. I'm just kidding. For the record, thankfully, I do not have neighbors like that. The thought of this is ludicrous, right? This week I was watching the sunrise and I thought, how crazy would that be if the sun came up on just one person in a crowd or one row on a field? It just doesn't work that way. Sun and rain fall indiscriminately on all fields and yards in that geographic space. And that's Jesus' point here. Apparently, if God has enemies, he treats them pretty well. They get the same sun and rain as his closest friends. So Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage, God gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. So live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Can you imagine how liberating that might be? to just know you're gonna treat everyone kindly, regardless of how they treated you. Sun up, sun down. Rain on field day, rain on field beat, irrespective of whose field it is. No more waiting and watching to observe how someone behaved towards you and then calibrating your response to them based on their behavior. That would be a transformation. Maybe this week, Whenever you feel the warmth of the sun on your body or put your raincoat on, you will reflect on Jesus' illustration here and be mindful of the all encompassing, gracious, indiscriminate love of God. And may it empower you to love others in the same way. So we love this way because this is who God is. But we also love this way because this is who we are or who we are to be. Christians are to be different. We're to be distinct. That's what this entire sermon is about. Verses 46 and 47 say it plainly. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Remember, tax collectors were at the bottom of the social scale. They were Jewish people working for the Romans. They often cheated, overcharged their own people. They were traitors. Pagans were Gentiles, godless people. Jesus' point is, every human being, even the tax collectors and pagans, are capable of some love for their children, for their best friends, for their pets. That's baseline. You're to be so much more. You're to love exceedingly beyond that standard. I was reminded of this a couple weeks ago when I was complaining to a good friend about something I was experiencing that was hard. (laughs) I whined, everyone else just does this! To which she quipped, yeah, but you're not like everyone else. And I was silenced, because she's right. And in this case, I don't want to be like everyone else. So Jesus gives us a serious reality check here. An employee doesn't get a bonus just for doing the job they were hired for. They have to go above and beyond. Similarly, Christians don't stand out simply by loving their childhood friend or their favorite aunt. Christians are only known by loving those who are against us, those who have mistreated us, who others wouldn't expect us to love. That's what's distinctive about us. The world's ethic code is reciprocity. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You mistreat me, I'll mistreat you. Jesus' code is to love the undeserving, the unloving, and even the downright hostile. And so you and I must honestly ask ourselves the question Jesus asked, what are you doing more than others? What is the more in our love? Is there anything distinctive about how we love other people? It can't be explained in human terms. Because if not, we're not actually living into the fullness of our Christian identity. There's nothing distinctive about us. But you choose not to slander a former coworker or employer who hurt you. You speak graciously about your ex. Now you stand out in a crowd And this is who you are meant to be, Jesus says. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That translation is kind of misleading. He doesn't mean perfect as in sinless existence. If he intended us to be sinless, why would he teach us to pray later in Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our sins, right? This word translated perfect, it's teleos in Greek. It means fully mature, grown up, fulfilling the purpose for which you were made. And in this context, it means you are to look like your dad. And God's love is all-encompassing. It extends even to his enemies. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love, agape, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are to love that inclusively. So Luke's parallel passage of this text reads, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So we've looked at the what Jesus, ask, Jesus is asking us to do. Will the good of the one who has hurt you? And the why, because God is indiscriminate in his love, and as his children, we must be also. Lastly, let's look at the how. How are we to do this? Does the passage give us any help? Actually, it does. Verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now that's real easy if the prayer is break the teeth of the wicked. Remember, loving our enemy does not mean we give up the fight for justice. But it does mean we don't wish them harm. Jesus' call to prayer here is radical. When people are against us, slandering us, or out for our downhaul, were to retaliate by calling down God's blessings on them, stating outright to God, we wish nothing but their good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor, seminary professor, and key leader in the underground church that resisted Hitler's reign in Nazi Germany, i.e., he knew enemies, said, praying for our enemies is the summit of Christian love. He wrote, Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. I say, no thank you. But this is exactly what Jesus does for us. And it's exactly what he did when his enemies were nailing him to the cross. Luke 23, 34 tells us one of Jesus' last words on the cross, as he is suffering at the hands of his executioners, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And the verb tense used suggests Jesus kept saying this repeatedly, not just once. I had an experience recently where I was reminded of the power of prayer I won't go into the details, but suffice it to say, I was reminded quite starkly that prayer is powerful. Sometimes it even changes the outcome, but always it changes me. I can tell you honestly that in preparation for this sermon in the last three weeks, I've been praying for some enemies. People I feel like have slighted me or mistreated me or someone I love. And initially, if you're like me, you start with a clenched jaw. You can't even sputter their names out of your mouth. But eventually, as you engage in praying daily for them, your heart stops to soften. I don't know how it works, but it does. I wish I could offer you a money-back guarantee or a free trial, because I stand by the product. Praying for your enemy will have results. It will change you. But don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' words to heart. So as you picture that person whose face came to mind earlier or that group of people, will you join me in the, in the enemy prayer challenge? Will you be bold enough and courageous enough to take Jesus at his word and pray for your enemy for the next seven days? Just try seven days. Maybe after that you'll extend it to 30. Now, you can be honest with God about how hard that is for you. (laughs) He knows what's in your heart anyway, so why try to fool him? If you need language for how to pray, you can follow Jesus' model prayer he gives us in the next couple of weeks in uh, the Lord's Prayer where he teaches his disciples, Lord, uh, it's all about your name, your kingdom, your will. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And if that sounds too hard, just punt and invite the Holy Spirit, who we're told in Romans 8, helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. City Church, Jesus' message today isn't hard to understand. It's just hard to do. It goes against every natural inclination in us. It will take the work of the Holy Spirit, but he's really good at his job. And this is who our God is. And we are called to look just like him, not simply to return good for good, but to return good for evil. Never are we more like God than when we choose to love our enemies. So let us follow Jesus' example Pray for our enemies, entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. For this is precisely how God in Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. We do not stand a chance without you. This is not something we are capable of. You don't leave us as orphans. You don't leave us without hope. You can and want to change our hearts and our lives for our sake and so that others would see who you are, that others would start to take note and say there is something different and distinctive about us. May it be so. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.